The text this morning in Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15 describes a future event known as the Great White Throne Judgment. It is a stark message written in clear language and it represents the final court date for the human race. God is the judge, unbelievers are the accused, eternity in the lake of fire is the sentence, And while the truth of this text is uncomfortable to many, it is a vital message for us all. The coming day is going to be the judgment of God, and it is knowing that day is coming is an essential part of a Christian's biblical worldview. So we're going to read Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. And then ask the Lord to bless the reading. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful that you have preserved your word for us, that you, through the servant of your apostle John, have told us to expect this coming day of judgment in which you will look over the unbelievers of this world and will judge them in righteousness and they will be condemned for eternity. Lord, please give us an understanding of this text and let each of us apply it in our lives so that we would learn from it the message that's vital to us, that we would be thankful for the work of the Lord Jesus, or that we would be warned to flee the wrath to come. Forgive us of our sins, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The greatest portion of mankind is betting their eternal souls on the hope and belief that the day described in our text will never come. But this is a day that is already recorded on the court docket in heaven. It is written on the calendar of God. It is not only certain, it is quickly approaching. In Jude 6, Jude calls it the judgment of that great day. In Romans 2, the Apostle Paul calls it the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In 2 Peter 3.7, the Apostle Peter calls it the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. As we walk through the text together this morning, I want you to be thinking about what this text has to offer you, no matter who you are or what your relationship is to God at this moment, examining John's vision of this great white throne judgment offers a tremendous benefit for you. The benefit of the message for believers is gratefulness. 
you get to know what it is that the Lord Jesus has saved you from. Knowing this final trial and condemnation is on the horizon of history not only fills believers with gratefulness and thanksgiving for the Lord Jesus, it also encourages us to get busy declaring the gospel to those around us. The benefit of the message for an unbeliever is a warning. Hearing about the coming judgment in advance is like driving down a highway and watching a traffic light turn yellow. It gives you this moment of decision. You can either continue down that road of unbelief to certain disaster, assuming that it's all just smooth sailing, or you can heed the warning that disaster is ahead. Follow along in the text as we look at this great white throne judgment in three parts. The courtroom is described in verse 11. The trial is detailed in verses 12 and 13. And the verdict is declared in verses 14 and 15. It's going to show us that this final trial of humanity in which unbelievers are brought before God, judged for their sins, and condemned to eternal torment. The courtroom described in verse 11 I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away and there was found no place for them. Since John's vision begins with this statement, I saw a great white throne, we need to spend just a moment to make sure that we don't have this event confused with another biblical promise of a coming time of judgment the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment are two different events. In Romans 14 verse 10, the Apostle Paul is addressing his fellow believers in the church at Rome and writes, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Similarly, he writes to the church at Corinth and says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So there is a coming day of judgment for believers, for genuine disciples of Jesus. And that judgment before Christ is to evaluate our faithfulness to him and our work for him. There will be rewards for those who have served the Lord well. There will be a loss of rewards for those who have wasted their opportunities to serve Jesus. But there will be no loss of salvation at that judgment because we are all secure through faith in him. Listen to how Paul says it again to believers in 1 Corinthians 3. He says that every one of us is building on the foundation of Christ And what we build for him with our lives will be evaluated. It will be like gold or silver or jewels or wood or hay or straw. And it will be made evident at the day of the refining fire and judgment of Jesus. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So for believers, 
there is an uncompromising judgment of Jesus in which he will evaluate what we've done in our lives for him. Not to the point of losing our salvation. Paul even says that those, those whose work doesn't measure up will still be saved because Jesus is faithful. But it will be a strict evaluation of how faithfully we've lived up to him, lived for him. That judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, is not what is being described in our text. That judgment is the judgment seat of Christ. This is the great white throne judgment. That judgment is for believers. This is for unbelievers. And that judgment, it's about the work that believers have done for Jesus. But this judgment in our text is about unbelievers' rejection of the work of Jesus. The judgment seat of Christ is the moment when believers will be rewarded, but the great white throne judgment is the moment when unbelievers will be cast into the lake of fire. In point of fact, the Lord Jesus even told us that we should expect these two separate and distinct judgments for believers and unbelievers. He said in John 5 that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. And in John 5, verses 28 and 29, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, in John's vision, the words of Jesus are fulfilled. There is a resurrection and judgment of life. And that resurrection to the judgment of being condemned is what's recorded in our text. Earlier in this chapter, there was a description in verses 4 through 6 of what John calls the first resurrection of the blessed and holy. He said in verse 5, you can look at it, the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. And now that thousand years is finished in our text and the rest of the dead are, in verse 15, now standing before God to be judged. The great white throne in John's vision is the place of that judgment. It's great because God's jurisdiction is expansive. He presides over all of creation, over every creature. It is white, the symbol of holiness and purity. That is the standard by which he will evaluate all humanity in unwavering righteousness. It's a throne, not just as a kingly throne, although he does reign as king. Historically, the king was also the ultimate judge of the kingdom. Right, All disputes, all judgments ultimately are brought to him and there is no higher court of appeals than this. The judge of all the earth on this great white throne is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. That is, he knows all things. He possesses all power. He is present everywhere. And so he is the perfect judge for mankind. For every human being who has ever walked the face of this globe and breathed the air that God loaned to them, they will face this judge. And every sin that you've committed, 
God, the sovereign judge of the universe, was not only there when you did it, he knows what you did, he knows why you did what you did, and he has absolute power and authority to sentence you in righteousness. It's important for us to know this, since John not only sees the throne, but he also sees the one who is on the throne. This is not an empty throne. It is not an open seat. There's no need for an election or an appointment or waiting for Senate confirmation. This is the supreme court of all human history and the sole seat on the bench is occupied by the sovereign of the universe who is the very embodiment of justice. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8, The Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness and shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. So also, let there be no doubt that the judge on the throne is the Lord Jesus himself. Earlier I mentioned John 5 in which the Lord Jesus told his disciples to expect this coming day of judgment, this resurrection for judgment of life and the resurrection for judgment of those who were wicked. In that same chapter, he also told them who to expect the judge would be. John 5, 22, the father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the son. In Acts 10, the Apostle Peter declared the gospel of Jesus Christ, saying that though he was killed by being hung on a cross, he is also the one ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And so now, while John, in this text, he doesn't specify in this vision that the one on the throne is the Lord Jesus, He has been clear in this vision, right? This vision goes all the way back to chapter 19. He set the expectation of who the one on the throne is, right? Back in chapter 19, Jesus returned to the earth as king of kings and lord of lords. And as king, there is no court of appeal over his own sovereign authority. He is judge of all the world. Though we might ask ourselves of the text, over what world? And I know that sounds odd, but the description that John gives of this courtroom in verse 11, it sort of sets the scene for what we're going to start reading about when we get to chapter 21. There's not much said about it, but listen again to what John says in verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven have fled away and there was found no place for them. This is not the people of the earth because it's evident they cannot flee from this judge and those in heaven have no need to flee from him. When you look at verse 12, the people of the earth are standing before God. So when John speaks of the heaven and the earth have fled from him. He's speaking about the very created world in which we live. This great white throne judgment marks the time when that created world comes to an end and gets replaced. 
the created world, which was created from nothing, sprung into existence through the word of God, it will be uncreated. It will dissolve back into nothingness. Listen to what Peter says as he writes about the last days. He says in 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13, Therefore, since all these things, that is all the creative world, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter says the day is coming when when the Lord is coming and the, the heaven and earth will be dissolved. That word that he uses comes from the idea of being untied. Creation will be loosed, it will be untied, and it will come apart. God, who holds all things together, will no longer hold this old creation together. Even the created order of things in this text cannot hope to stand in his presence. But Peter says we watch for the promise of a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness lives. Now, is the Apostle John's vision here on the same page with Peter? Yes, he says in verse 11, the, the, the heaven and the earth, they have, they have disappeared. They cannot be found. But then when we start the next chapter, chapter 21, verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. So in verse 11, John sees this throne and I don't know what all else he sees, but he doesn't describe a lot of detail of everything else. We would think that the entirety of creation passing out of existence would garner a little bit more attention in his vision. But everything that is missing, I think John would say it is nothing to to compare to what is here. The judge of the universe is presiding on a great white throne over this final day in court. The majority of John's attention is drawn to the great white throne and the one who sat on it. Now that we've seen the courtroom described, let's go on to the trial detailed in verses 12 and 13. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works." John says he saw the dead, the physically dead. That is, all those of all time throughout human history who have rebelled against God. All those of all time who, knowing God through his good creation, are without excuse for their selfishness and sin. The prophet Daniel says in Daniel 12, verse 2, these are the ones who sleep in the dust of the earth but have been raised to shame and everlasting contempt. So John does not say 
I saw the souls of the dead, small and great. He simply says he sees the dead. In fact, there are physical distinctions, bodily distinctions that, that John gives of them. For example, in verse 13, he sees the seas gave up the dead which were in it. John even says death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. We noted in previous weeks that word hell is Hades. It it's not, doesn't necessarily mean hell the way we think of it, but it's a generic term meaning the place of the dead or the grave. He does see these individuals who have died and are in torment in this temporary place of Hades. And the destiny of all of them is evident. They're destined to be thrown into the lake of fire, which is hell as we think of it. So dead bodies are raised up from the sea. Dead bodies are raised up from the grave. This might just incidentally be a description of how it is that heaven and earth passes from existence. This is a physical resurrection of the wicked dead. We'll have more to say about that in a moment, but for now, let's just be clear about that distinction. Daniel Aiken explained it like this, quote, with resurrected bodies fit for hell, people from every corner of the earth will stand before righteous King Jesus. They will stand before the judge of all the earth and they will be judged righteously and without partiality. Nobody skips to the front of this line. Nobody would want to. Nobody hides in the back because nobody's able to. There is no preferential treatment. There are no special circumstances. John says they stand before God, small and great, so that the ruling aristocrats of the world and the lowest beggars stand side by side. The old and the young, the men and the women, all are indicted together. Every skin tone, every language, every ethnicity, every nation. So the the pharaohs of Egypt who had enslaved the people of God, Alexander the Great who conquered the known world, wicked kings and queens of long forgotten kingdoms, slaves and chambermaids, generals and drummer boys, architects and ditch diggers, all of them are there together. And with them in this crowd your neighbors and your friends and some of the people sitting with you in this room right now. Listen, if 12 men followed Jesus and one of them was an unbeliever, a man who professed faith but didn't possess faith, then no doubt the same is happening in this room this morning. And they may well find themselves standing shoulder to shoulder with Judas. You see what I mean? This is, this is a, an essential part of a Christian's biblical worldview. In, in Acts 10, verse 34, Peter said that God is no respecter of persons. And what he means there is that the Lord God determined that the gospel of Jesus Christ should be proclaimed, declared to, to all men, that they could escape the wrath of God through faith in Jesus, the perfect man. But now... The same God who commanded the gospel to be carried to all rebellious people without partiality is the divine judge who will adjudicate the eternal destiny of all those who continued to persist in their rebellion and he does that without partiality. As this trial of history continues, 
collectively and individually, John describes two exhibits admitted into evidence against the accused. Listen to 12 and 13 again. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. There are two standards for justice that are given at this great white throne judgment. And the first appears to be these books, this record of every deed, every thought, every word from each individual's life of wickedness. Now, one thing that tells us is we can reject the idea that this is some sort of massive, generic, collective condemnation. Like, gather up, y'all. All of you are condemned. Go away. That's not how this works. Every individual, John says, is judged according to their works. And those works are clearly recorded in these books that he sees that are like entered into evidence at the trial. If you stand before the judge at this trial, the evaluation of your life is going to be personal. It's going to be very personal. Some of y'all remember the Watergate scandal involving U.S. President Richard Nixon when when Congress found out that Nixon had basically bugged the White House so that every one of his conversations ended up recorded on audio tape, they demanded those tapes. And when they finally got them, there was this mysterious 18 and a half minute gap where something had been erased. Clearly, something that was being hidden that was important. But when God raises these wicked sinners and puts them on trial, their entire lives, every event is entered as testimony against them. There will be no hiding the worst things that you've done. There'll be no disguising your selfishness or justifying your intent. You are not going to be able to erase the worst and most important and most embarrassing 18 and a half minutes of the record of your life. Every sin secretly committed, every wicked thought that you've kept to yourself, every hateful and harmful word that you've spoken, every selfish desire of your heart, nothing is withheld from the all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing God. He knows everything you did. He knows why you did it, what you were thinking when you did it, because he was there, and he's going to judge it. In the U.S., we talk about justice being blind. The justice of God is not blind. The justice of God sees everything. This isn't just part of John's vision. This is the, like, this is the comprehensive teaching of Scripture. Let me give you some examples. Matthew 12, 36. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man will come in glory of his Father with his angels and he will reward each according to their works. In Luke 8, verses 17. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed nor anything hidden that will not be made known and come to light. 
Paul says in Romans 2.16 that God judges the secrets men have kept by Jesus Christ. The final sentence of the, the book of Ecclesiastes is for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. The final judgment facing unbelievers is not going to involve them being collectively cast into the lake of fire without individual consideration. Every individual is going to be judged righteously, fairly, equally, thoroughly, and personally. Some will fare better than others, but none are going to fare well. I do think John's description here that there is a judgment that is individual and then this punishment gives us a suggestion, it's yet another suggestion, that the eternal torment of the lake of fire is going to include different degrees of torment. But before anybody in this room starts to feel any relief because you think, well, oh good, because comparatively, I'm not all that bad. You need to ask yourself what it is that God says is all that bad. When you know more about Jesus and continually reject and rebel against the gospel anyway, you're going to bear a responsibility for the revelation that you've ignored. Jesus in his own teaching, when he... he, he he said to, to cities like Capernaum and Bethsaida, right, those who had seen his miracles and heard his message, he said they would experience greater condemnation. He said it will be more tolerable for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it is for you because they have ignored the revelation of Jesus. The books that John sees containing the Every action of life. This is the first entry into the evidence at this final trial of mankind. But there is a second one. John says, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. This book is the ultimate standard of justice. It's the book sometimes called the Lamb's Book of Life. It is said in Revelation 17, verse 8, that the names contained in it were written in the Book of Life of the Lamb from the foundation of the world. It is God's list of names of those to be admitted into eternal life through the work of Jesus alone. But, okay, Sovereign Grace Baptists, listen to me here. This is not a book of those righteous souls who deserve citizenship in heaven. Let me ask you, when you think about all the sins that are being judged at the great white throne, right? Those, those public sins that are known, those secret sins that are revealed. Those are the sins for which unbelieving humanity will be cast into the lake of fire. But if we transferred our attention to believers, to those who have eternal life, if the books of their lives were opened, would it read any better? Would you not find believers to be a bunch of murdering, thieving, sexually immoral, selfish humans? If so, then why is there this second book called the book of life? Why is there a distinction 
The only difference between depraved, wicked, unbelieving humanity and depraved, wicked, believing humanity is faith in Jesus and what he has done for them. I am content to say that I know full well if the book of my life was opened, it would be more gross and more ghastly than most of those that are at the great white throne judgment. The difference is not that the believer deserves to be saved from the wrath of the righteous judge. The difference is that Jesus stood in my place and took that wrath on himself. He endured the judgment that I deserve. At the great white throne, it is surrounded by humanity that rebelled against God and has persisted in that rebellion against God and has no desire to be saved from sin, no interest in the good news of Jesus, and because they are not and do not want to be associated with him in faith, they get what they do want. You recognize that God is actually giving them here what they are asking for. What they want is actually some of the most frightening words ever recorded. They are judged every man according to their works. And by our own works, we are all guilty before this righteous judge. Now look at the verdict declared in verses 14 and 15. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Death and Hades, John says, cast into the lake of fire. Death is that which removes us from our life and our bodies. Hades is used to describe that temporary place of punishment for the wicked. For example, in in Luke 16, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus said, he uses this word Hades and says the rich man in Hades lifted up his eyes being in torment. Death and Hades no longer have any function After the great white throne judgment, bodies are not going to die. There will be no more death. Hades is replaced by the lake of fire, the eternal place of burning torment. This lake of fire that John describes here is what we usually think of when we use the word hell. It's something Jesus spoke of frequently. Most often he described it by using the word Gehenna. He's describing the valley of Hinnom that existed just over the walls of Jerusalem. There was this valley that was basically used as a trash heap for the city. It was constantly burning with trash, maggots and worms constantly feeding, except in the real lake of fire, Jesus said all of that happens and nothing is consumed. To be cast into the lake of fire is to be sent to the eternal burning trash heap of God that he has prepared for the wicked. Jesus said to be afraid of that place. Jesus said it is a place of weeping and gnashing or grinding teeth. He said only God could cast people there, but he also said God would cast people there. In Matthew 10, 28, he said, don't fear those who can kill your body but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And so Jesus taught 
hell, the lake of fire, is a real place of real consequences, a place of physical anguish and eternal torment. You know, much of the world would would decry the justice of this and say, eternal burning punishment does not fit my crime. The problem with that thinking is letting criminals decide by their own standard what punishment is just. Imagine going to any courthouse in the United States today and looking at an accused criminal who knows they're guilty and said, just sentence yourself to whatever you think's fair. Well, what I did isn't really that bad. And the world says my sin isn't really that bad. Well, really? We're going to take our own personal ideas about our sin and turn it into a logical argument against the justice of hell? How about we do this instead? How about we read about this lake of fire and the eternal torment that happens there, recognize that that is justice from an all-wise God, and then let that answer our question, just how bad is my sin? It's this bad. If you want to know how bad your sin is, you've got a couple of ways you can do that. First off, you can learn about hell and let that punishment tell you about your crime because it is the finishing, fitting punishment for your crime. The second way is to look at the cross of Jesus Christ and see as he suffered in agony and torment, naked and ashamed, separating from the Father, his soul suffering 10,000 times more than we'll ever understand and know that's what I deserved. As these wicked men and women in our text are cast, they are hurled, they are thrown into the lake of fire. We get no suggestion here that their wickedness somehow changes. When Jesus said that hell includes weeping and gnashing teeth, the weeping part tells us that it's a, it's a place of sadness and pain, but gnashing or grinding teeth, usually in Scripture, most often that is used as a description of anger. The wicked cast into hell do not spend eternity indifferent to God. They spend eternity in anger and hatred of God, continuing what they've always been. Whatever measure of mercy and grace they'd experienced in their life, right, restraining their selfishness and their sin for a time, there's no mercy and grace present in hell. And so their sin is displayed in full measure, both in the suffering of anguish and pain and also in the teeth-grinding anger toward their creator. This, John says, is the second death. The righteous are raised to eternal life. The wicked raised to second death in which they will wish that they could die. Being, they will be ever perishing and never able to perish. This is justice. Dispensed at the final trial of the wicked from the great white throne of the Lord King Jesus. This must be part of our worldview. This is a biblical reality. This is what we need to know and how we need to see the world around us. For believers, this is a message that should just drive us to to gratefulness and and thanksgiving for what the Lord Jesus has rescued us from. But it's also a message of motivation 
knowing that this just sentence is awaiting our unbelieving friends and family who desperately need to hear the gospel. For unbelievers, this should serve as a solemn warning. Abandon your sin and appeal to the Lord Jesus in faith. This time of judgment is already written on the docket of heaven's court. This day is recorded on the divine calendar of God himself. It is coming. And every sinful event of your life has been recorded and is ready to be entered as evidence against you. What you are facing is judgment that is certain, inescapable, unrelentingly righteous, and thoroughly personal. And it ends with a guilty verdict that condemns you to eternal torment. But now, in this time, the gospel of Jesus is declared. This is the good news that you can be delivered from this day of wrath. Confess your sins, trust in the Lord Jesus, and escape the great white throne judgment to come.